The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Here it is, the avocado jungle. Look around you, bunny. In front of us, the lush, untouched rainforest of the last surviving matriarchy. Behind us, the polluted patriarchy of Western civilization. We're leaving a world dominated by men and entering one ruled by women. What do you do? Just keep bashing men. In a couple days, you'll be dying for a Burger King out here. I doubt it. Hey, women, you're always bitching and moaning about men and the way we run things, but let's face it, who could have ever invented but a man, the 64 GTO? Or for that matter, the, the Corvette Stingray, any year, any model. All you women have ever done is what? Some French chick invented kryptonite or something. The important things like beer and meat, that was all yeah, men. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a woman inventing nuclear weapons. Exactly, and where would we be without them? And the Nazi Blitzkrieg seemed like a male idea, not to mention South African apartheid. How about World War One, the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the rape of Shanghai? So men have done a lot of things. Uh, Elvis Presley. Janis Joplin. Pat. Joan of Arc. How about Tammy Baker? Jim Baker, Jerry Fowler, Jimmy Swaggart. Jessica Hunt, Fawn Hall, done it right. Joseph McCarthy, Richard Nixon. Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers? I like Joan Rivers. I think she's funny. Well, I think Nixon's funny. Morning London. It's Thursday, January 29th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color. Color into black and white. Under the bedclothes. Everything will be alright. Today we got an interesting show for you going to be talking about the concept of uh, affirmative consent. I, cannot, I almost have a tr trouble saying that word, Robert. It's such an oxymoronic concept. Yeah, I, I, I can't wait for that segment of the show. It's just really unbelievable. And what we're going to be talking about in the first quarter, you're going to be uh, hinting on that right now? In the first quarter, Bob, I'm going to talk about um, some feedback that I got from the uh, previous show. Uh, listener Mark wrote, I agree 100% with your argument about the status of animals. Now, on last week's show, I did talk about the status of animals, individual rights, um, animal rights, whether they have them or not, and uh, status. So Mark was uh, in agreement, and he said, I would like to know your opinion on recreational hunting as well, though. Ought it be illegal to kill an animal strictly for the joy of it? For a purpose like food is ethical, and I would never take that sort of an argument, but I just can't justify killing sentient animals willy-nilly for the pure sake of it. Well, I'll condense what Mark is asking into one question. Should hunting for sport be illegal? Sport hunting. Although he does imply a moral component to the issue. On last week's show, I tried to show a, a progression of thought which led me to conclude that animals while they do not have rights, have status in law and that such a status is proper. Such status gives rise to laws preventing cruelty to animals but does not prevent us from killing them. I, have, I gave several um, examples and uh, reasons, what I thought were rational reasons for killing some animals at times, those being, of course, food, clothing, or the advancement of science. 
There's others, including culling a herd of deer, for example, which might be causing too many traffic fatalities, or shooting coyotes if they encroach on urban areas, as one did just last week here in London. Much to the chagrin and to, to the anger of a lot of uh, the people who thought, maybe, well, maybe let's keep this rabid coyote walking around Wortley Village. You know, why not? Is, Is it actually rabid? Um, well, they said that it may have been rabid. Although oh. so, well, one caller to a, a talk-in show said that it was probably just distemper, which is a different uh, kind of an ailment altogether. But who wants to be... Uh, no, you don't you want to err on the side of safety, animal. of course. Oh, yeah. Now, these are preventative safety reasons, and I'm sure there's uh, plenty of other reasons that you may want to kill animals. But the question raised is, should sport or human pleasure be a legitimate reason to kill a sentient animal? I'll give a qualified yes as my answer. Rights are a, a necessary man-made construct applying only to men in a social context. And I pointed out that last week that not all men have uh, all rights, and for very good reason. We deny the rights to contract and to liberty to children and those who are mentally impaired. People often forfeit their freedom and sometimes their right to life by denying others their right to life, liberty, or property without their consent. Such people are criminals and are properly imprisoned for our protection. Sentient non-human animals, insofar as they interact with man, have only status. Such a status prevents us from committing acts of cruelty upon them which is proper, and such status is usually applied based on the nature of the animal and where it lies on various physiological scales. Is it sentient? Can it feel pain? Does it emote? Is it capable of understanding language? There's another criteria, and this is ownership or custody. Whose animal is it? By, what I, uh, by, that, by that I mean, of course, um, whose property is it? Right. Or whose custody is it? Yeah. In um, I'm having just a little difficulty with my headset here. No, Sorry. you're okay. I'm hearing you fine. Yeah, you're good. Okay. Based on such criteria, we don't care what we do to, for example, snails, but we do care what we do to gorillas. There's a spectrum or a gradient of the physiological characteristics of animals which we recognize and give appropriate status based on where on that spectrum a particular animal falls. Now, while I personally don't see the sport in hunting an animal simply for a trophy to hang on the wall, there are those who do see value in it and their choice should be respected as long as the kill is done humanely, i.e. with the minimum amount of pain as is practical, and that you have the permission, of course, of the owner or the authority in charge of the animal. These are not the days of the open frontier. Every bit of land in the world is either under the jurisdiction of a private individual or a government. The private jurisdiction is simple. If you own the land and the animals on it, they're yours to hunt for sport as you see fit, with, of course, that caveat of uh, being humane applying. Now, whether or not the government should own land at all is uh, another question, but it remains that they do, and therefore have jurisdiction over the animals on their land, and most governments allow hunting for sport at certain times and for specific animals, usually for rational reasons. They might wish to limit the spread of a species like deer, or they may want to maintain a population, such as with the bear. But in all, but all in all, the reasons governments allow hunting, they're usually rational reasons. But I think Mark's question is more of an ethical one than a legal one. Should it be moral to kill another sentient non-human animal for sport? I won't include the slaughter of elephants 
for their tusks or the killing of bears for their gallbladders, because such cases are always cases of a poacher violating the rights of the people who have jurisdiction of, of those animals, usually a government with custody of the animals on reserves or government-controlled land. An animal in the wild faces a death, usually of being eaten alive. An animal in the wild, whether a deer or a gorilla, rarely dies of old age. Their deaths are usually gruesome and painful, typically arising from being attacked, for being diseased, or for being the runt of the litter, usually by a predator bigger or faster than or smarter than them. In the end, the natural death for an animal in the wild is far more grisly than a death by a bullet or an arrow at the hands of man. If such a death gives a hunter some element of satisfaction, then that's a value I think that we should respect and protect. The hunter is not being cruel, he's simply being the predator who is stronger, faster, or smarter in a world filled with predators and their prey. I'll make an exception which I may be challenged on because uh, it might seem to contradict what I just said. Referring back to the spectrum or scale of physiological characteristics which give some animals status, and while leaving some without the benefit of such status, I think there's a class of animals which we should prohibit the killing for of sport. In particular, the great apes, which show such intelligence and kinship to humans, I believe, that they should be left alone. Grillers, for one, have shown the mental capacity of young humans. They're capable of exhibiting the same emotions we do for apparently the same reasons. Coco with a gorilla can sign over a thousand words and is capable of understanding, if her handlers are to believe, over 2,000 spoken English words. This fact alone places gorillas well above the moose on the what-shall-we-kill-today scale. It may be argued that uh, some cetaceans, like dolphins, should be protected for their intelligence, as most jurisdictions do offer that protection. Now, just as individual human rights are not cut and dried and have their exceptions, so too should the granting of status to various members of the non-human club. The concept of individual human rights is only a few hundred years old. Applying some degree of status to animals is a much more recent concept than that. We're talking about an evolving philosophy of the role of non-humans in a human world. And while humans should always come out on top, there's no rational reason to suggest that we treat all members of the great amorphous continuum of life on this planet the same. It only stands to reason that an entity's nature be taken into account when dealing with it in human context. And so, Bob, with that said, let's see how many English words a chicken can understand. <laughs> oh, man, come on, beat, beat. I need another egg for the souffle. Hey, good chap, Herman. Give over or out, whichever is easier. Herman, come on. Hi, any luck? Unless he shapes up no souffle tonight. Watch this. Chicken, this is your commanding officer speaking. <laughs> you lay an egg, and that's an order. Nobody respects officers anymore. <laughs> any action? Nothing. That chicken's a ruddy crowd, if you ask me. Stubborn. Newkirk, name-calling never solves anything. <laughs> Come on, darling. I want the souffle tonight. Come on, Jiki. Come on. Quack, 
Herman. Oh, that's great. Was it something I said? <laughs> I just want to finish by saying a few words about the impact of this imminent neurological breakthrough. When the orgasm has been finally eradicated, the last remaining obstacle to the psychological acceptance of the principles of Ingsoc will be overcome. In other words, the unorthodox tendencies towards own life, which constantly threaten the natural erosion of the family unit, will no longer have the biological support of the organism. As we all know, the biological and social stimulation of the family leads to private reflection outside party needs and to the establishment of unorthodox loyalties which can only lead to thought crime. But the introduction of ARTSEM combined with the neutralization of the orgasm will effectively render obsolete the family until it becomes impossible to conceptualize. Power is tearing human minds apart and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Power is not a means, it is an end. When we can cut man from his family, his children, other men, there is no loyalty except loyalty to the party. There is no love except love of Big Brother. All competing pleasures we will destroy. If you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. And that was from the 1984 film, 1984. And, you know... Interesting subject we're having here today. You know, when left-wing governments and interests begin a process of legally defining fundamental concepts and meanings in order to destroy their original concept, then I think it's time to sound the red alert. The issue is consent, and as with all the words in our various dictionaries, when you place an adjective in front of it, the original concept practically ceases to exist. Consent is the ruling principle of any society that can call itself a civilization, and it usually implies the absence of force or coercion in any relationship between two or more people capable of consent. Now, current attempts to implement an oxymoronic concept called affirmative consent would make the absence of force or coercion a moot point it would become almost irrelevant. The political process is underway and it affects everything from our relationships with our friends and spouses, the, the sex education our children will receive in our schools, and is at the heart of one of the least understood controversies of the day, the Bill Cosby allegations, which by the way, as of a couple days ago, now total 31, we'll talk about that a little later, and the campaign behind it. 
this is not an easy political phenomenon for people to wrap their heads around, so to help us with that task, we're pleased and delighted to have with us today, uh, on the phone, live line, Le Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever join us for the balance of our show today. Paul, are you there? I'm here. Uh, hi, fellas. Oh, hi, great Paul. to have you, have you here. Now, just a couple of days ago, you released an interesting piece called Simon Says Sex, The Nature and Purpose of Affirmative Consent, which was released to the media and to all the members of provincial parliament. And right. Tell us a bit about that, because I'll tell you, that one caught me by surprise, and you sure hit some nails on the head in that, in, basis, in, in terms of what we've been talking about on the show recently. Well, this is going to hit people by surprise, and hopefully it won't hit them too late. The, the affirmative consent just sounds like, you know, double plus good, you know, good yeah. consent. It's not, though. It's a very particular term, and it was developed in 1993 as a matter of a, a one, one college's uh, policy on uh, sexual offense prevention. And it read like this. It gave a brand new defi definition for consent or a way of determining when there is consent. It says, quote, consent means verbally asking and verbally giving or denying consent for all levels of sexual behavior. The person with whom sexual conduct is initiated must verbally express, quote, consent, unquote, or lack of, quote, consent, unquote. Each new level of sexual activity requires consent. Silence conveys a lack of consent. So it switches entirely the whole way we think of just about everything in contract law, law in general, from one in which silent, you know, Jimmy, uh, uh, you know, moves toward Sarah for a kiss, and Sarah maybe extends her face forward for a kiss and puckers her lips, and they kiss. Sarah did not consent under this policy because silence is not consent. She literally has to say the words yes or yes, kiss me, or etc. So, so, and at so, each new level, apparently, this has to be done again. So if he <laughs> wants to now kiss her neck, he would say, may I now kiss your neck? And she would have to say yes. And if she didn't, silence means no consent, means there is not consent, and therefore he has sexually assaulted her. This is inhuman. It's completely ridiculous. It and defies it so human ridiculous. nature. Well, it was, it was so ridiculous at the time, 1993. The college was called Antioch College. It was a little liberal arts college in the, in the States. And Saturday Night Live actually picked up on it and did a skit, which I think you'll be hearing later. Yeah, it, we'll, we'll be playing that later, and, and, and it's just, you know, Paul, I have to tell you, even when I read your original report, and we've had this discussion together, even I, who, who, who will accept a lot of those things just on face value, have a hard time wrapping my head around this, that anybody would even go there. And yet it explains so much of what's happening, in particular behind a lot of the Cosby allegations, which I noticed you, you made a, a very brief reference to in your report, along with some other people who were caught in this trap. And it seems that we're... I wasn't that far off then when I said at the beginning that the actual absence of force or coercion in a relationship is almost becoming a moot point in terms of how the law would define consent under these circumstances. Well, that's right. In fact, I give a couple of examples in my paper that, you know, one person asks for a kiss, the other person nods yes, does the dance of the seven veils, lies back on the bed, <laughs> invites the other person to come to the bed, uh, extends out for a kiss, and then the kiss happens and that person's committed sexual assault because no one said yes, and that's literally the way this gets interpreted. So it takes away from evidence and consideration anything other than verbal yes and verbal no. In other words, all kinds of physical actions that anyone would use to either request or to, get, or to uh, consent to any kind of physical interaction 
is irrelevant. We don't take that into account. Words only. And it's, it's an evidentiary standard. The effect of it is all sex means rape, except where someone said yes. That's it. And the, uh, the intention, of course, is to establish a guilty until proven innocent standard. It's the reversal of the onus. Every sexual act is an act of sexual assault unless and until someone can prove, probably beyond the, you know, a reasonable doubt, that the, the complainant said yes with her words, not with a nod, not with a touch, not with a pulling someone closer to her, but using the word yes. And of course, the, it sets up a legal minefield for anybody, whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, doesn't make, it applies to all kinds of uh, homos, uh, homosexual and heterosexual contact. Um, and it basically sets up a minefield so, so bad that most people will probably say, to heck with it. I'd well, rather be celibate than put my neck in the what news. If you're, what if you're uh, going out with somebody, or you're not even going out, let's say just having sex, with somebody who's a, d- a deaf mute, or <laughs> speaks a different language, and even though you know the language of love is supposedly universal, they don't understand English, and uh, you know, there's no consent involved there. Well, there's, there's the language barrier, there's also the age barrier. Consider this. Uh, and you know, I, I just noticed this the other day. I was looking at a quotation I put in my paper from the newspaper, Toronto Star, January 7th, and this is the Wynn government, which has now said they're going to put consent into their sex edit uh, program that they're going to be releasing in a month or two. But listen to this very closely. Uh, Wynn has asked Education Minister Liz Sandals, quote, to find a new health and physical education curriculum that gets at some of the root causes of gender inequality. Oh, boy. Wait a minute, that's What's not that? sexual assault. But mm-hmm. this isn't a, about, but, but she continues and says, and starts at the various, very earliest stages to develop an understanding of healthy relationships and consent. So they're passing off what's going to be feminist theory as a theory of consent. And of course, it's exactly where it comes from. The, the people who proposed affirmative consent in the first place were radical feminists at Antioch College. And the uh, current effort in California, they just passed a law says that if you want to continue receiving money at your university, you have to adopt affirmative consent, not just consent, mind you. Affirmative consent, only yes means yes, everything else means rape. You know, you've got to ask yourself why anybody would want this, but, but quite apart from that, as you said, what, if the person, what about the person who can't speak English? What about the person who's seven years old? And they're being told in, I don't know what grade you're in, say grade two or three, by the Wynn government's new uh, uh, you know, proposed sex policy, that yes means yes. Well, it does not mean yes if you're a child. There's no way, there's no words on earth that could, that could allow a child to consent to any kind of sexual contact. It sounds as if that this uh, affirmative consent may be what is known as grooming of children to be, um, you, know, you, you know, to be um, uh, looking forward to sex. All you have to uh, do is say is yes, say yes, and then, you know. Yes, well, this, yes. Yeah, but then everything's good to go, right? Yeah. Well, no, not, things aren't necessarily good to go. There are a lot of other things that come into play, the age of the person, um, the, the context. But, but just imagine what this does. If, if we start teaching 7-year-olds and 8-year-olds and 9-year-olds that yes means yes, and that sex is good, which it is, I agree, sex is great for adults, for people capable of consenting, but for children to go out there and think, because all they can really grasp through all the legalese that they're going to hear in class is that somehow yes means yes, they go out, and some 18-year-old or 25-year-old or 49-year-old says to the child, do you want to do this? The child says, yes. She figures she's consented. 
Mm-hmm. Don't think that these groomers out there, these, these sexual predators, won't take advantage of affirmative consent if it's taught to children. I'm, that's a real concern, and I've, I've written this in part and sent it to the MPPs precisely so that they will be careful when they're developing the sex ed program not to teach that yes means yes for a child, not to teach it in a way that children might think it does mean yes for them. Well, teaching children who are not capable of consent about consent is good on one level, but certainly is fraught with dangers on another. Um, You know, it's funny. I'm trying to wrap my head still around who's behind this and why California went ahead with this. I'm reading in the the papers here, even at the University of Western Ontario here, Western University, they call it now, in the Gazette, and I hear constantly all these programs they're putting in to essentially bring in concepts like this into the thinking at all uh, colleges and universities. Is there some problem they're trying to address? with these draconian concepts and and why again this whole thing just seems patently insane to me it's just on on the level of it that you can't consent through your actions that your actions don't mean anything and then how would someone prove okay there's only two people in a bedroom most of the time who the heck's going to be the witness to say that one of them said yes or didn't. It's still you're you're right back where you were to begin with. He uh, said, she said. Yeah. How how does it change anything except that now this stupid laws on the books? That law has to be there for a reason, and it's certainly not for verifying whether consent occurred in a certain circumstance because that's impossible unless there's a third witness or that's or you're recording. That's right. And so, what is the effect of the law? Is there any effect of the law? Absolutely. The effect is that every sexual act becomes a rape from the get go and you have to prove it was otherwise. Oh, wow. That's the effect. That's the intended effect. And what it does, of course, is, is creates this legal minefield where anybody uh, can, can later on say, well, you know, Simon says, kiss my lips. Simon says, uh, kiss my neck. Touch my bum. Wait a minute. I didn't say Simon says. Guess what? You're guilty of sexual assault. I mean, that's a bit of an absurd example, but it gets, the, it gets across the, the danger of this kind of system that anybody... Uh, who has sex is guilty. Both both of them. Both of them are guilty. You know, from the get go. In your um, in your blog, Paul, you say that um, the intent or the consequence is to replace love and respect between men and women with fear, distrust, disrespect, animosity, and hatred. I have to agree with you. There can only be one reason to uh, to pr- to promote such a stupid law, and that is um, to do exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I, I mean, two people, in a, in a, in a, if they understand this policy well and they're trying to follow it, it's, it's absolutely absurd. And, and you know, the, I just can't see people doing it, first of all, and I can see all kinds of abuse uh, that is potential. So, so, so can anybody see the potential abuse here. But I think really what somebody is trying to do, and we can talk about who that is later, but what somebody is trying to do is make each of the parties in that room or that place so distrustful of the other uh, that they just say, you know what, I'm, I, I, I don't trust you, I, don't, I can't trust you because the law doesn't allow me to trust you. As soon as we touch, we've had a sex, there's, a, there's been a sexual assault, you of me, me of you, under the chestnut tree, as it were, and, and uh, now it's just a question of which one of us wants to run to the police first and say that the other guy didn't say yes with his, with his mouth. No, that, that, you know, it's funny you just said, with his mouth. 
can you put it in writing? I guess you can't. Writing doesn't count anymore, does it? It has to be verbal. Uh, that, well, that, that makes it even more, more nebulous. It's, it's even less provable. They've almost created, let's pick the, the type of evidence that can't be proven one way or the other so that we can have our cake and eat it too kind of approach. I don't know. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, mark my words, and I, I, you know, I know you're, gonna, you're coming up on the bumper here, but th- there are people who will benefit from this. There are people who will benefit from a system that drives people apart, that makes sex something that's too risky, especially between men and women, where you know there's all kinds of historic problems and current problems between men and women, um, uh, real problems that we see, you know, people who really are charged with sexual assault, etc. And so uh, to, to, to uh, ex- exploit that with this new redefinition of the way in which you determine consent, there's a, there's a goal here, and... and the goal, the means to it, is to drive people apart. Hmm. But it also, not, not just in terms of driving them apart from sexual contact, but literally to drive men and women apart as well, because they tend to be uh, heterosexual sex is the most common type. You, you know, so are you saying that uh, Kathleen Wynne, who, who is a lesbian, has uh, a, an agenda, a lesbian agenda here with this uh, introduction? I don't think there's a lesbian agenda. I think there's certainly a cultural Marxist agenda. Mm. to drive women and men into separate collectives, to make them think and fear one another. Uh, men fearing that women are going to stick their head in the noose and uh, accuse them of rape. Women fearing that they're going to be raped. Uh, both sides being told we live in a rape culture. We better stick to ourselves. Uh, we better not trust each other. And why all this, you know, why bother having sex? Better to stay home and play Nintendo. There's several articles, in- incidentally, recently that are suggesting this is, in fact, a growing trend. There's actually terminology being used popular terms for, for men and women who have just decided not to bother dating, not to bother going out. Japan's uh, quite a bit like this. Um, very much a stick, stick to yourself and who needs the bother. And uh, it serves well those who want to drive us into separate collectives. Well, it certainly speaks to the comments made in that 1984 opener that we had there, and I know that you referenced that in your in your presentation that you sent out as well. And you also referenced um, the following Saturday Night Live clip that we're about to hear that was actually aired in 1993 originally, and I just can't believe how accurately they spoofed what we're talking about today as becoming a real law. I mean, it's just beyond the pale as far as I'm concerned. Let's listen into this and we'll continue our conversation when we return. Live from Antioch College in Antioch, Ohio, it's time to play Is It Daybrave! With your host, the Dean of Intergender Relations, Dean Frederick Whitcomb. All right, ladies and gentlemen, students and faculty, we've got an exciting show. Back with us is our defending champion. She's a junior and a major in victimization studies. Say hello to Ariel Halpern-Strauss. And our challenger, he's a nose tackle and a Sigma Alpha Epsilon brother. Say hello to Mark Strobel. Welcome, players. Let's take a look at our board. The categories are halter top, she was drunk, I was drunk, kegger, off-campus kegger, she led me on, I paid for dinner, and raging kegger. 
All right, Ariel, you're our champion. The board is yours. She led me on. It is the last day of school. A female student asks a male student to help her move her futon. Helper and Strauss. Date rape. Well, <laughs> I didn't even finish the question, but it is date rape. Okay, for those of you not familiar with the rules to our game, it's quite simple. Antioch College defines date rape as any sexual contact or conduct between two or more persons in which consent to such contact, which includes the touching of thighs, genitals, buttocks, or the breast chest area, is not expressly obtained in a verbal manner. If the level of sexual intimacy increases during an interaction, i.e. if two people move from kissing while fully clothed to undressing for direct physical contact, and the people involved do not express their clear verbal consent before moving to that new level, that too is date rape. All right, Mark, you get the board. Come on, halter top. I paid for dinner. She orders a steak and a shrimp cocktail. Strobel. Not date rape. Oh, sorry, Halpern Strauss. Would you like me to finish the question? Date rape. Correct. Surfing turf? That's like 40 bucks, man. Uh, let's move on. Halpern Strauss. Halter top. Oh, that siren means one thing. Here to help us with the question are the Antioch College date rape players. May I compliment you on your halter top? Yes, you may. It's very nice. May I kiss you on the mouth? Yes, I would like you to kiss me on the mouth. May I elevate the level of sexual intimacy by feeling your buttocks? Yes, you have my permission. May I raise the level yet again and take my clothes off so that we could have intercourse? Yes, I am granting your request to have intercourse. Contestants. Date rape. Oh, sorry. Mark, what do you say? Is it date rape? Uh... Oh, man. Uh... Date rape? Oh, sorry. We were looking for it is not date rape. Not date rape. contestants. Mark Strobel, you have been charged in three hazing deaths with two counts of hate speech and one instance of sexual harassment when you referred to the women's field hockey team as, quote, a bunch of lesbos. Glad to be here, Dean. All right. And over here, our lovely young champion. Take your hands off me. Very good. That's good for 10 points, Ariel. And... You've got the board! Raging Kegger! All right, once again, the date rape players. 
I sure had a nice time at that raging kegger. May I kiss you on the mouth? Yes. Kissing me on the mouth is something I feel comfortable with. Mmm, that was nice. Would you mind if we had sexual intercourse? No. Halpern Strauss. Date rape. No always means no. That's correct. Good job, Ariel. Bit of a trick question there. <laughs> That's a funny, funny example. Uh, we're on the phone with Paul McKeever of uh, the Freedom Party of Ontario, and uh, we're discussing the concept of affirmative consent. And, of course, uh, Paul, you've called this, this concept um, revolutionary and uh, Instead, you said it's, it's um, how did you put it here? Cons affirmative consent is not a small and innocuous precautionary step. It is revolutionary. What did you mean by that? Well, that, that's, again, that's the, the reference to the fact that what is being done here, I mean, on the one hand, you say, as I said, you know, affirmative consent, it sounds like just consent, isn't it? Aren't we just talking about consent? Right. So it's loaded to sound like nothing different. It's just something of affirmative and up with life and isn't the world grand. But in fact, it's a way of distinguishing consent from affirmative consent. Affirmative consent doesn't mean consent at all. It means this different way of making people behave. And um, that in and of itself is, is uh, socially um, you know, revolutionary. But legally, that's the more important way in which it's revolutionary. Because what it does is it smuggles in the back door. This concept of affirmative, act, uh, affirmative uh, consent smuggles in the back door. Uh, a reversal of the onus uh, from the person who is, uh, you know, accusing someone, having to bring evidence that they were in fact harmed. Instead, it makes the person who is accused uh, bring evidence that they didn't do anything wrong. In other words, instead of being innocent until proven guilty, the affirmative consent uh, approach makes everybody guilty until proven innocent. And that's revolutionary. In fact, it's, it's absolutely evil, but it's it's a revolution from good to evil. You know, you even pointed out in your report, you said um, the context of the current push of affirmative consent policies and how the media in 2014 put allegations of sexual assault front and center and left them there day after day with the greatest amount of reportage and opinion writing dedicated to allegations of sexual assault where no charge has been laid and no one's suing the accused and they're newsworthy people who are wealthy, famous, influential, like Woody Allen, Prince Andrew, and, and Bill Cosby, for example. Right. And, of course, that's the pattern that I have discovered in investigating all of these uh, you know, allegations against Mr. Cosby, which carry no weight when you look at the, at the bulk of them. In fact, another one just came up this week, and she's the 31st. Her name's Sidra Ladd. And, you know, she talks about having a, a, a relationship with Cosby, and apparently he asked for her number and she gave it to him and she says, quote, we began hanging out, took in a movie. And by the way, this happened back in, uh, I think, 1969 or something, but, you know, 50 years ago, okay? And it just came out this week. Think about that right there. And, and that's something you point out, too, that there's no time limit on when you can bring these allegations forward. And all of these allegations fit your formula to a T. And she talks about how, you know, Cosby came over, they, they hung out, they took in a movie, they watched TV and pizza and hot dogs. And she says, his polite and unusual behavior, though, made Ladd speculate the beloved t uh, TV actor's intentions. 
I have to admit, she wrote, it made me wonder what his objective was. And this is in her own essay in a tabloid paper again. A tabloid paper? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. And then, and then everyone else picks it up. And quite frankly, I, would have, I think she'd have been in a better position and more credible if she stated what her intentions were. What's she doing inviting Cosby over to her place when she knows he's married and when she knows all these situations at the time? You know, and then she says she has a headache and that he gave her some kind of pill. And it's, I find it interesting that a lot of these women say they had a headache before Cosby gave them a pill, as if Cosby knew they were going to get a headache <laughs> if it was an intentional setup of some sort. And then they just get groggy. They have no recollection and, except for the fact that they're convinced he had sex with them when, when they wake up or come to or 20 years later decide to talk about it. And, of course, Cosby's continued to deny all these accusations and has received support. But this is extraordinarily damaging, and it seems to me there's a pattern here. Um, do you have any comments on some of these things that you've heard? I know you're aware of some of them, Paul. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to necessarily get too far off topic with the, with the particulars of the people who are making allegations, but I think what's noteworthy is that the focus is on making sure that whether it's Cosby or any other, you know, wealthy trusted, famous, influential male, um, that's, those are key, okay? They have to be wealthy, trusted people. Uh, why do they have to be trusted, okay? They have to be trusted because we have to show that they weren't trustworthy, that our trust was misplaced, that, oh my goodness, I was wrong about, uh, you know, Dr. Huxtable, the character. I was wrong about the prince of, of uh, you know, the, uh, the prince in England. I was wrong about Woody Allen. I was wrong about all these high wealthy, uh, well-respected men, every one of them is being alleged to be a rapist. So clearly, if they can be alleged to be rapists, and if the sheer volume of people alleging that Bill Cosby, uh, you know, uh, did this to them, uh, indicates that, well, he must, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, well, my whole world is melting. I don't think there's a single man anywhere who's not a rapist. And that is the intended effect. You know, Wear uh, everyone down, you know, men and women, Day after day, drip, drip, drip. Allegations are all you need. If they're frequent enough, it doesn't matter anymore. We get so sick of listening to it. We just assume that, ah, oh, to hell with it. It must be true. I don't want to know the details. Oh, here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. And we get uncritical, and that's part of the plan. You don't have to be critical uh, to believe. And, in fact, you have to be uncritical to believe if there's no evidence put forward. So this is a way of wearing down the public, making sure that we can wear down also trust between men and women. And no. that, I think, is at the root of this uh, campaign that we're seeing. You know, everybody who's rich, famous, and male is being accused of, of... And some of them are guilty. I'm not saying they're not. And those people deserve all the punishment they get. But when, when we see these campaigns of, of volume that seem really scant on evidence and from sketchy sources like the National Enquirer, that, that should raise our, our uh, alarm bells. And, and so I, what my point is here is that I think, in a sense, all of society is being groomed to, dis, to distrust men, to distrust women. Uh, you know, you'll see a lot of people who say these, are, these people are liars. I'm not in a position to know one way or another. But what I do know is that the effect, when, all, when women are called liars and when men are called rapists, is that men cease to trust women, women cease to trust men, and relations between them break down which is exactly what is, is uh, facilitated if you implement a plan like this, affirmative consent, which makes it so difficult to trust one another and makes everyone a rapist from the get-go. Mm -hmm. I mean, by default, you're a rapist because you had sex. 
now prove that you had a verbal yes somewhere in the bedroom beforehand, or else you're guilty, that is designed to make us distrust each other, designed to make us be, you know, worry about being with each other. And why does this, who, who could possibly benefit from this? Well, anybody who doesn't want us to feel that we're all individuals first, men and women second, you know, that our sex doesn't really make that much difference. When you take a loving relationship between a man and a woman, or between two men or between two women, they don't particularly care about class structure and, you know, women as a class, men as a class, who's got more money, power, wealth. They're just enjoying their lives and their love, and they're having sex in a very consensual and happy way. Well, you, you know, you, so you need to tear that down if you want to make people wary of one another, make them hate each other, fear each other, and say that all men are awful, I don't want anything to do with them, all women are awful, I don't want anything to do with them. And once we've got everybody in their own little you know, uh, group, their collective, then we can say, aha, look at this. The men's collective has more political power, higher positions in, in, in the job market, uh, they're making more money, Obviously, it must be because they hate women. Obviously, it's because we live in a rape culture where every man hates every woman, and therefore we need to use force to redistribute wealth, redistribute jobs, redistribute, redistribute until everything's good and equal, regardless of the individual's particular entitlements, just based on the fact that they're a member of a collective. And you know, that's the Paul, goal. The, um, you're talking about cultural Marxism here, of course. But um, part of cultural Marxism, and I think it was alluded to in the 1984 novel, is the um, reworking of the language, newspeak. And I think affirmative consent is part of that newspeak. It's as if there is a change out there of words and terminology that people like you and I are on the outside. Like, like what we turn around and all of a sudden consent is no longer consent, yet it's affirmative consent. We feel alienated, almost like, what's going on? How do we come to grips with understanding these new terms? And we're going to go to a break now. And I think that the capsule... This is a haunting haunting thing. This was well done in the Twilight Zone where Robert Klein suddenly discovers he doesn't understand what's going on in the world around him anymore. Yeah, like us today. We'll be back right after this. Stay tuned, Paul. Morning. Morning, Bill. Hey, Ginger had her litter last night. Want to see him? Maybe later. I'm coming home for lunch. How many did she have? Nine. Nine? I know. That's quite a few for a small dog like an encyclopedia. But Ginger came through like a champ. You said encyclopedia? Yeah. Encyclopedia? Ginger is an encyclopedia? Last time I looked, she was. Well, you knew that, Bill. Come on, give me a break, will you? <laughs> May I speak to Doug Seaver, please? This is Bill Lowry, McConnell Denton calling. Listen, Bill, can I get back to you? My wife's waiting for me. Today's our 17th wedding throw rug, and I'm taking her out for a sale and then to dinner. Uh, I'm sorry, Doug. Today's your what? It's our throw rug. Your throw rug? Right. 17th. Talk to you tomorrow. Uh, oh, Doug, wait. Throw rug? Well, hi, Robert. Oh, hey, Mr. Lowry. Do you know that new girl in accounting, Barbie? Sure. Well, I've been asking her out and asking her out, and she finally says okay. She's going to be here in five minutes, and I can't think of any place to take her for dinosaur. I mean, I thought of the Capitol Inn, but it might look like I'm trying too hard. What do you think? You're planning to take this girl out for dinosaur, huh? <laughs> That's right. Dinosaur? Uh-huh. Wait a minute. You're saying dinosaur? Yeah. 
I'll see you guys down there. Okay. What is this, some sort of new wave expression or something, saying dinosaur instead of lunch? <laughs> no. Then what are you talking about, Mr. Lowry? If you don't want to... I mean, if you can't think of any place, I'll just ask somebody else. Why? Yeah. Uh, honey. Hi, sweetie. How was your morning? Pretty good, I guess. Except for one really strange thing that happened. I was leaving work. This kid, Robbie, works in the mailroom. He stops me and he says... Excuse me, sweetie, I don't mean to interrupt you, but this is going to be done pretty quick, and I wanted you to look in on Donnie before we eat. Was something the matter? His cold's getting worse. He's so pale and awfully congested, and he didn't touch his dinosaur when I took it into him. What? What did you say? I said, I think Donnie's cold is getting worse. No, no, no. Did you say dinosaur? Mm-hmm. He wouldn't touch it, and it's his favorite tuna fish. Why are you saying dinosaur? What do you expect me to say? Did Robbie or someone from work call you and tell you to say dinosaur as a joke or something? Robbie? Who's Robbie? Why would he call me? Then why are you saying dinosaur instead of lunch? Dinosaur instead of lunch. Bill, what are you talking about? Can't you hear what you're saying? You're saying Donnie wouldn't touch his dinosaur. I know. And I'm a little worried. Dinosaur? Come on, Kathy. It's lunch. The word is lunch. Lunch? What has lunch got to do with anything? What has lunch got to do with anything? Okay. What does lunch mean? Bill, you know what lunch means. What does it mean? Tell me! It's a color. You know, sort of... reddish, a light red. Honey, this is, this is almost ready. Would you please go up and check on Donnie while I dish this up? That was a chilling clip from the Twilight Zone. Totally and, creepy. <laughs> and you know what drives it home for me is the fact that the original um, cultural Marxists who brought this forward in Paul's article were actually called Women of Antioch. Women spelled W-O-M-Y-N. Mm-hmm. What do you think that meant, Paul? Oh, well, they don't want anything to do with men. They don't M-A-N. want the word men to appear in the word women. They don't want the word man to appear in the word woman. So they take the A out, or the E out, as the case may be, and put a Y or an I, or you can put any letter you like in there. You can put dinosaur if you like. <laughs> but, uh, and in fact, you know, it's interesting. You've got dinosaur in that example from the Twilight Zone. It's the same as saying that the word consent, I'm not talking about con- affirmative consent, but the word consent, absent the word affirmative, it would be like saying that that concept is now to be called dinosaur. Precisely. You know, and we're we're not. We're, it's a dinosaur concept. It's not even to be chawed anymore. It's 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 a color on the wall. It's you know, but affirmative consent, which they want to teach the children. 
20 years from now, will be what they understand to be what we call consent. And at that point, when they are raised in a, in, a, in a school system that tells them that basically everything's rape unless you get a word yes out of it, for, out, out of somebody first, and they distrust each other and say, what's the point of all this? Uh, we're encouraging distrust. We're encouraging uh, a society where nobody loves each other, where everybody is just a member of a collective, paranoid that the other collective is out to skin them. Uh, how, and I'm telling you, this is a, this is an, a, a deliberate assault and I think we have to be very careful that we don't let the wind government, uh, you know, try to pass off affirmative consent as though it's got anything to do with keeping people safe from sexual assault. It's got everything to do with uh, driving the sexes apart, collectivizing us, and making us hate one another, another just enough that they can then justify wealth redistribution, job redistribution, and everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's how fascinating because... Again, getting back to Sidra Ladd's um, allegation, and again, you're right, we don't know any of the facts of these, but what we do know is what they're throwing at us in the court, in their so-called court of public opinion, and that's all I'm going on. Mm-hmm. And what she said here was very interesting. She says she didn't lay or, or, or come forward with her allegation for almost half a century because, quote, it was a different time, and, quote, end quote, date rape was a concept that didn't exist, back then. So so apparently now that the concept of date rape exists, she can now uh, retroactively put an allegation in 50 years later. But you know, I think back 50 years ago, we still had the concept of non-consensual sex. And if she had gone to the police or reported that someone gave her a drug and then raped her while unconscious, or in her case, while she was, quote, feeling like she was floating, they would have laid charges. Date rape is another one of those words. Uh, no. Rape is rape. Yeah, There's d- no need to qualify it. Yeah, and call a d- it date rape or qualifying consent to call it affirmative uh, consent. Precisely the same kind of term. And I find it very interesting that if you go into all of these allegations, and I mean all of them, I'm going to be summarizing this at some time in the future, you will see all of these terms being promoted and that that is what is going on. In fact, I was always wondering why, and, and Paul, you, you gave me a haunting answer to this. I said, why are they picking these specific allegers who have no cases, who will never bring their case to court, who will never um, be in a position to do anything about it? Literally what they're doing, in my opinion, is being allowed to, to libel and slander in open public. And, and without any consequences. And I, when I was asking you about this, you said something haunti- haunting to me again on this, Paul, when we talked, and you said because it's not the men that are the enemy, it's the law in this case, or something to that effect. Am I getting that right? Yeah, so if you, if you line up uh, 30 or 20 or however many people with allegations that under their law in the States um, can't be acted upon, that the, law, you know, the, the limitation period's timed out, if you want to make a full-scale assault, on the law. If you want to say that limitation periods are wrong, what you do is you line up 20 or 30 people, you demonstrate you know, that they're making serious allegations about someone, and then you make a point of saying that none of these people can do anything about it because the law is, is preventing justice from occurring. And so that may very well be the whole point of uh, you know, the, the, the uh, lawyer in the States, the feminist lawyer has been putting all these people up uh, against Cosby. That her, her point probably is one that we haven't yet heard, but that eventually will, t- will turn into a campaign to eliminate uh, limitation periods uh, with sexual assault situations or alleged sexual assault. Already going on. I mean, these are already parts of the patterns. Um, you know, 
the allegations are all unsupportable in a court of law, as, as if they couldn't find one person. You know, it's funny to me too. Uh, while while most people see the number of allegations as some some symbol of, con- of of lack of consent or or of something really bad going on, I see it as the opposite. You wouldn't. What what are the odds of getting so many people to fit into this perfect pattern of not being able to? to support their contentions in a court of law, that the fact that they all originate in the tabloid media and the tabloid press, they all began as exclusives, including the latest one we're talking about, too. Yeah, and a lot of them are paid. And the release and timing of them, all orchestrated at the same time by the same interest groups and the same people. And it just goes on and on, and, and people are just not cluing in. How can... You know, looking to the future and trying to wrap this up, how can we communicate what's going on to the general public in in a, in a way that they can understand that this isn't necessarily what they're what they think they're seeing? I think what we have to remember is that consent is always, you know, something we have to uh, understand the proper uh, concept of consent. But that when you hear someone telling you that all men hate women, all women can't be trusted to tell the truth, or whatever you hear, those gross generalizations you are being fed uh, a, a campaign that's designed to drive men and women or just people apart to put an end to love and sex and great trusting relationships and also that they can create a, a uh, justification for massive government redistribution uh, uh, across uh, between classes and it's got nothing to do with safety of anybody safety is already being taught consent's already being taught in our schools affirmative consent what's not being taught and that's because affirmative consent's got nothing to do with consent and everything to do with creating an atmosphere of distrust and hatred it's an anti-concept most definitely we're getting very close to the top of the hour paul any last comment you might want to make that we haven't covered or that you might want to have gotten in there <laughs> before we left <laughs> well i'll just point out that uh, you know this is a levels of the con- uh, levels of advance through the sexual you know uh, act they're saying i need consent at each stage and we've seen that in the comedy there Question to yourself, how would you know what another person thought was a next step, a next step in the sexual uh, adventure that you're having on one, uh, some evening? Um, if, is it really a next step if I go from your mouth to your neck, is, or maybe not? And does everybody get to have their own rule book, personal rule book? And if so, how do we know what your rule book is? Or should the university try and set up uh, a, a catalog that explains every single possible transition from this to that, from that to this, um, so that everybody knows, and that the book's about three inches thick. <laughs> I mean, there's just no way you can know what a next step is, uh, or, or at least know with complete certainty. And therefore, again, a legal minefield uh, is set up by this affirmative consent. Paul McKeever, thanks for joining us today. We certainly could have been talking about this for hours and hours. At this point, I must ask everyone for their consent to end our show for today. And whether I get it or not, the show must go on, but not till next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Now it's time for our bonus round. You know how it works, Mark. You have 30 seconds to win Ariel's consent. Are you ready, Mark? Okay. Go. I was wondering if uh, you're not busy. No. Uh, there's going to be a party at the frat hall. No. Can I kiss you? No. 
Can I put my hands on your buttocks? No. <laughs> do you want to do it or what? No. All right, Ariel, congratulations. You win a trip for you and Mark to Acapulco. No. Woo! <laughs> you will spend two nights in Acapulco at the Lover's Hideaway Beach Hotel. Oh, this is so wrong. I want to thank our contestants and the date rape players. Come on, everybody. Let's give them a big kiss goodbye.